You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. Good morning, church. I'm just going to grab one more thing and then we'll get started. Um, as I get started, like Mark said, we're doing Genesis. I'm not talking about the book of Genesis today. Um, we're going to walk through the story of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, most people try to do this in a year. We're going to try to do it in 35 to 45 minutes. We'll see how this goes. I'm very excited for you all to be here this morning. Um, I'm the director of kids ministry here, and I'm excited. You know, next week, Mark will start us in Genesis in our very short, very quick 66-week or 66-week series titled Every Book for All of Life. Um, But before I get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, and I praise you for the opportunity today to uh, just dig into your word. Lord, I, I thank you for your word, for your Bible. I thank you for how you have preserved it over the years so that we can have really luxury of a hundred different translations in English that we get to choose from to immerse ourselves in what you have given us. God, I thank you for writing this book so that we can know you, so that we can praise you. And God, I thank you for your son who died on that cross so many years ago so that we can have this relationship with you. Lord, I pray as we get started that this would be a time that is glorifying to you that you would get the glory, that you would get the praise for what you have done over the years from creation until now and what you will do into eternity. Lord, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come alongside you and the work that you're doing in the world. And Lord, I ask that as we sit here and as we go out from here to our neighbors and to the world, that we would live our lives worthy of your gospel calling. Thank you so much in your son's name. Amen. Okay, this is a big topic. Um, I wish I could say that Mark gave it to me so I could blame him for Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, I asked him if I could do this, not knowing what I was really getting myself into. Um, But to begin, I want to ask us one question. How do you view scripture? What is this book that we all have? Maybe one copy, maybe three copies, or if you have a phone, access to... 65 copies, 100 copies? What is the Bible? And why is it important that we view the Bible through the lens of narrative? Well, the Bible is God's word. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. God gave us his word in written form. I think my Bible is close to 1,600 pages. The Pew Bibles and the Seabacks in front of you are close to 900 Uh, But he gave us his word. The creator of the universe wrote a collection of 66 books that are compiled into one big story, one document, one historical document. Why did he do this? What was the purpose of this? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes all scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, although all they had at that time was the Old Testament because they were writing the New as Paul wrote this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We see here that the entire Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is breathed out by God. So while it may have been written by about 40 authors over the span of 1,500 years, the Bible ultimately has one author. And God wrote this book to tell us something. So what is the Bible not? It's not a self-help book. It's not something that we go to to feel better about ourselves. While it does do that in places, at other times it tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. That's not, if, if I was in a dark place and that's all I read was that passage, not a great self-help book. We need more than that from scripture. It's not a to-do list. We should not approach scripture as seven things to do so that God will love me more. Or what do I need to do to look like a good Christian? It's also not part of a checklist of how to be a good Christian. We should read our Bibles, but not for the purpose of looking good. It's also not an academic project. There are people out there unsaved with PhDs in Pauline theology. They don't know Jesus, but they know the contents of this book. And while it's good for knowledge, we should not approach scripture to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's also not meant as a topical study. And while those are good, we can approach the Bible as we look for answers to marriage, to salvation, to sin, to women in ministry, to end times, to all kinds of topics. If that's all we use scripture for, I think we miss the point. We miss the forest for the trees. So the Bible is God's story. And I think we're going to find that out today, that God wrote this, and this is a story. This is a saga. This is an incredible story of adventure and intrigue and betrayal and trust and love and triumph. This is an awesome story. And it's not about us. It's about God. So as we move forward, we're going to talk about why narrative is so important. Before we get to God's story, I'm going to tell you a story. I knew a young man a few years ago. He was born and raised in a Christian home, and his parents taught him about prayer and faith. They took him to church. He grew up knowing what was in the word. But then he hit high school, and he met a girl, and that slowly, that relationship slowly drew him away from God. And by the time he hit college, he was drinking, and he was partying for the first few years of that experience. And then he got a job at a church working with kids. What's wrong with that story? Well, that's my story. And what's wrong with that is I didn't tell you 15 years of it because early college was 15 years ago for me. And something happened back then. God got a hold of my heart. And he has spent the last 15 years growing my faith and my knowledge in him. He has done incredible things in my life. I'm married to an amazing wife who also loves the Lord. And through that, God has given us a heart to see the nations come to him, to see unknown, or people that do not know him, know him. And I tell you this story to, to illustrate the importance of narrative. If I had just left you with, he works at a, he parties, he works at a church, there's a lot left to that story that we need to know to understand how that happened. So why is it important? to view the Bible through the lens of narrative. Narrative is simply a word 
to describe either a written or a verbal account of connected events. This is a story. And every culture is and has been a storytelling culture. We learned at our, at our Bible school about different tribes all over the world, and there are still people groups that do not have a written word. So they pass down their traditions, they pass down their culture, they pass down their beliefs through story. Human beings are created for story. Stories help us to remember important truths. When I say, I don't know, David and Goliath, what do you think? Well, God is powerful, he is personal, and he can use anyone to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. Those are good truths about God that we learn through David and Goliath. Or Daniel in the lion's den. God is powerful. God cares about us. God has a plan. So we use story to impart truths. What are the stories that define our culture right now? We have Star Wars, the Star Wars saga, right? For those of us my age, it's three movies. For those of you younger, I don't know how many it is. There were like three more, and then there were some series and a bunch of other things, but that's a saga, and people are really into that. Uh, we have Chronicles of Narnia, a seven-book series. Didn't make many movies, but a seven-book series where we learn. Or we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is probably one all of us are familiar with. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, first three phases of that were 23 movies, right? We have the Avengers, we have all of that stuff. I loved the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it is, we were able to watch one of those movies and get the plot line and the story, but when you watch all of them together, they tell an overarching story. And I talked to people like, I was huge into it, there was Endgame, it was awesome for me, it was very nostalgic, it brought stuff back from the first movies. I talked to people that hadn't watched any of them and they're like, eh, it's all right. Okay, but why don't we view scripture like this? We have 66 books, and oftentimes we pull out the Psalms, and we say, okay, these are the Psalms, and we pull out Colossians, and we say, okay, here's a letter to the church in Colossae, but oftentimes we don't stop to think that maybe the Bible has one story that God is telling us through those 66 books. And I think it's so important, Jesus used it in this way, it's interesting, if we turn to Luke 24, verses 24 through 27, we find Jesus meeting some followers on the road to Emmaus, and the context of this is interesting. This is post-resurrection. The women have gone, they've seen the empty tomb, they've come back to where the disciples and some of Jesus' followers are, and the Bible says that they considered it an idle tale. That was what Jesus was telling them. So Jesus runs into these two and they're talking about all the events, what happened in Jerusalem and they don't really know what to do and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And, and they say, don't you know what has happened in the last few days? And he says, what's happened? So we'll pick up there and Jesus says to them as they are talking to him, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is Genesis, and all the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This was a seven-mile walk, and the story starts right outside of Jerusalem and ends in Emmaus. And Jesus spent seven miles explaining 
the entirety of their scriptures to them and how it all pointed to him. And then they get to the town and they invite him in and he says, no, I'm going further. And they convince him to stay. And then all of a sudden they realize it's Jesus. They had no idea. And he disappears. That's the end of the story. And then he was gone. So we see here in the story in Luke that Jesus talks of all the scriptures, explaining them from start to finish, making the point that they all point to him. And if Jesus uses the scriptures in this way, shouldn't we also explore that and see what that looks like? What God has written for us? So in order to view scripture as narrative, we need to look at what narrative is made of. I think that that's very important. It's made up of five pieces. We have the setting that just defines the original. That defines the necessary background for understanding the coming events of the story. And it gives us the lens to look at the rest of the story through. We have the conflict, which typically introduces an antagonist, someone who is against the main character. Then we have a rising action or a plot. And that's what takes up the bulk of the story. And that is, how does that conflict resolve? How are we getting back to the resolu- or How are we getting back to the setting? And then we have the climax, which is, ah, oh, man, we're there. Okay, I can see how this gets back to the original setting. And the epilogue, which is in the end, and it's a bookend, pointing us back to the setting. So the setting is very important. That's the introduction for today's message. Let's get into God's big story. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. That's the end of the slides. Uh, I'm going to draw, and I'm not an artist. So this is going to be fun. Um, This is something that one of our teachers did for us back at school, and it rang true uh, for both Kenzie and myself. So we will draw out the story of God, or we'll draw out the narrative of God's story on the screens behind us. I'm, fortunately, I'm not an artist, so you guys can still take notes. None of these are complex. And that's a good thing. If you are an artist, talk to Mark Pritchard and get art into December's art show. All right, so Mark had us turn to Genesis 1. We are gonna fly through scripture today. Like I said, we have 66 books to cover, and I don't have a whole lot of time left. But the simplest place to begin is in the beginning. So in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here we have, I'm gonna draw a throne for God. We've got God in the beginning. Here's his crown because he's king of it all. He was all there was in the beginning. Before creation, before the sands of time started to fall, there was God. But there's something interesting that I think helps us set up the setting. We find just a little nugget in Job that God had an audience when he created, and we don't know when the angels were made. But if we turn to Job 38... Verses four through seven, this is God talking to Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God tells Job, where were you when I made this? The angels were there. They were praising me, but you, you weren't there. So there's our setting. We have God creating. Can you imagine what that was like for the angels? Hey, guys, tomorrow I'm going to create some stuff. Be down here at 6 a.m. It's going to be awesome. What stuff? I don't know. I don't know what stuff is. So all the angels show up, and God speaks. Let there be light. Whoa! Light? What is that? That's incredible. Plants. What are those? I don't know. He said they're plants. That's God's stuff. That's what he's making. It had to be awesome. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Oh, those are pretty. I'll praise you. Those are pretty. The fish and the birds and the bears and all of the animals and the angels just must have been amazed at all of this stuff. But then something interesting happens. Towards the end of day six, what's happening now? God's made all this stuff. And God gets down and he forms man from the dust of the earth and he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And man comes alive and the angels go, what is that? Something different about that. That's special. God did that differently and that is special. So in Genesis 1.26, we get a little explanation. God says, let us make man in our image. <clears throat> After our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing and God said, behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed and every tree with its seed. You shall have them for food. And a couple lines later, it was so. God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. So by the end of the sixth day, we have our setting. God has made all things through the power of his voice. He made man in his own image. He gave man the command to fill the earth. He gave man the authority to rule over the earth. And chapter two just jumps back into chapter one and, and recounts it. But we find two more things. There is a tree of life in the garden and there is a river flowing out of the garden to water the world. Keep that in mind. We might come back to that in the epilogue. Man. So cool. All right. So the end of day one, here we go. Artistic abilities I do not have. Here's a timeline. Here is our creation. And God has set man and woman here with their crowns to rule over creation. Enter the conflict, pretty good, right? I know. At some point, we don't know how long, Satan enters the garden and he approaches Adam and Eve. 
It is important to note at the beginning of Genesis 3, it says that the serpent was the craftiest of all the created beings. God writes into his story already that Satan is not his peer. He is a created being, and he falls under the authority of God. So Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say? And there's an ensuing conversation, and Satan is immediately labeled in our conflict as the antagonist, fixed firmly against God. And Adam and Eve fall prey to Satan, and they listen to him. And in one move, they put Satan above themselves, and they give their God-given authority to Satan. And this upends God's created order. Previously, it was God, man, creature. And in this moment, Adam and Eve have placed themselves under the creature. In Romans 1.23, it says, they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And they put the devil in place of authority in their lives instead of keeping God as king. Interestingly, I asked my oldest, Finley, who's four, I said, Finley, what did sin do? She said, Dad, Sin broke the world, and she was right. We have our original setting up ended, and here is going to be one of the most intricate drawings I will do for you today. Here is our tree, knowledge of good and evil, our crafty serpent, and here we have Adam and Eve taking the fruit placing Satan as their king. Okay. Now let's get into the rising plot. Let's get into the story. This is the good stuff. What happens as God begins to restore his original setting? Will he have his people filling the earth, worshiping him as his kingdom, or will Satan have his kingdom? We will see. Even though we know that God and Satan are not peers and there is an infinite power difference between the two, we're going to trace a thread through scripture of God's move, Satan's move. God's move, Satan's move. And we're going to see who comes out on top in the end. So please, for those of you that have read the Bible, pretend like you haven't. Place yourself where you're just reading through it for the first time. And we'll go from there until we get to the climax. So right out of the gate, God makes his first move with a curse But nested in it is a very distinct promise. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15, focus on what God says to Satan. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting that God says that Satan is going to have offspring. And we see this, this sort of setting of a battle ensuing where we have the seed of the woman, those that follow God, and the seed of the serpent, those that oppose God. So God has said, this is so cool, there is a head crusher coming. And that's what we're going to be looking for. That's what we're going to be excited about throughout God's story. 
How cool is it that the first time we hear of a Messiah or a Redeemer is in the very same chapter we found out that we needed one? Let's fast forward. Let's speed through to Genesis 6. The generation after Adam and Eve went downhill fast. Cain, murdered. And mankind just went down from there. So let's turn to Genesis 6, verse 11. And we'll stop in verse 13. Now the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God said, or God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So Satan has been at work to the point where the entire world, it says, is wicked all the time. Except for Noah and his family, the seed of the woman. So skipping to the end of the flood and Noah's getting off of the ark after the world has been destroyed. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3, And God blessed Noah and sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I give you the plants. I give you everything. Notice any similarities to what God says to Noah? That he also said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Fill the earth with my image, with people that worship me. And he gives them dominion. Okay, time for our next drawing. We've got an ark coming up. So here we go. One ark, I feel like genie right now. One ark coming up. Here is Noah's ark. So we don't make it very far. Just one chapter to see that Satan is already making his next move. And instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, mankind has decided to all congregate in one spot and build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. And Genesis 11 tells of the Tower of Babel. And how God moves in judgment again. And I find it interesting that God scatters them across the world and confuses their language, doing to them what he had commanded them to do previously. God is sovereign, which is so important. I should have drawn our, our throne a little higher because he is still above Satan. And we have God's sovereignty still over all things. So blasting through... We have the Tower of Babel. So God moves forward with his plan in the next chapter. We're still in Genesis. Maybe Mark won't have to teach Genesis next week. We have been dealing with global things up until this point, and now the story zooms in on one man. Let's move to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we get the story of Abraham a pagan that God has chosen to do some incredible things. Genesis 12, verse one says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses one man out of the entire world and makes some really awesome promises. God is going to use Abraham to bless the world. At this point in the story and history, because we don't know what's coming, maybe Abraham is the redeemer promised in Genesis 3. Well, let's keep moving. Let's find out. Genesis 15 promises that Abraham's offspring, this just builds, promises that Abraham's offspring will be as many as there are stars in the sky. And then there's this strange scene where God has Abram bring, what does he have him bring? A cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Okay. Split the big animals in half and separate them. Well, we need a little bit of history to understand what's going on here. Uh, they're about to make a covenant. And it's a little, it's like a contract, but it's a little more extreme than signing on the dotted line. Because we've killed five animals for this. And what they would do is anyone that was involved in that contract or involved in that covenant would make that and walk between the halves of the animals, effectively saying, if I break this contract, let it be done to me as it has been done to these animals. That's an extreme contract. And it's so cool because God puts Abram to sleep and God walks through those animals alone. God takes on himself the full ability to fulfill the covenant. God will get the glory alone. And God also in that moment says, if this covenant is broken, I will pay that consequence of being broken. Man, our God is awesome. So Genesis 17, God adds a little bit more to the covenant. And he tells Abraham that he's going to have some descendants. He's going to give them some land. Kings are going to come from Abraham. Man, looking back at God's move, this was a move. Abraham, God is going to make into a great nation. God is going to bless all the world through Abraham's offspring. God is going to give them land. God is going to make them kings. And our story continues. And the man Abraham is not our redeemer. Okay. Genesis 17, I think there's about 49 chapters in Genesis. So you're probably wondering if we're ever going to get there. It'll speed up from here. There's just so much there that we needed to touch on. So Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 12 sons. They turn into the nation of Israel. It's really awesome. And there's one tribe in there, the tribe of Judah, that gets another promises. Uh, promises. Good night. Promise. And this is in Genesis 49. God tells Judah. God tells Judah that the the Sorry, the scepter will not depart from him, nor the ruler's staff. And this is important because God narrows down where the Redeemer is coming from to the tribe of Judah. Before we move on, we're going to draw Abraham so we don't forget. Abraham, here's his beard. And this is Abraham. So as we enter into Exodus, chapter 1, we made it through Genesis. Now we're in Exodus, chapter 1. 
we see in our narrative that Satan has been at work. The nation of Israel that came from Abraham is now about 400 years in slavery to Egypt. And Satan is trying to use Pharaoh to end Israel by killing all of the baby boys. If this succeeds, the kingly line of Judah ends and God's promise and God's plan stops. So God is forced to take action and he saves Moses. He is sovereign over everything. And in a twist of irony, he actually uses Pharaoh's family to save and raise Moses. Could Moses be the promised redeemer of Genesis 3? God moves again in might and in power. And we know about the plagues, bringing his people out of Egypt. And Moses leads them into the land, promised them through Abraham. The nation makes a stop along the way at Mount Sinai. And we get another covenant here. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we're moving into where the Ten Commandments are. And God says, now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And following this, God gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he gives them the law. And the law is this long list of things that they could never live up to, pointing them to their need for God for their redeemer. And as part of that, whenever they sinned, they had to take an animal and kill it because the wages of sin is death. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the nation of Israel is killing sheep and cows and goats to atone for their sins. But there's never full atonement because if there was, the sacrificial system could have stopped. So there we have the law. And this covenant is slightly different than the one made with Abraham because it is contingent on Israel doing something. It's contingent on Israel obeying. Remember, God said, if you obey, I will do this. God is going to bless them. That's his desire. And he's going to use them to bless the nations of the world. Hmm. Let's jump all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is going to add a couple of details for us. In Deuteronomy 28, this is, Deuteronomy is kind of like a speech, his final hurrah of Moses before he dies and Israel enters the promised land. And he's recapping to them the law and what they need to do. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, this is a very specific, this is a curse. This is judgment on what will happen to Israel. This is the worst if they don't obey. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. God wants to set up Israel as his chosen people in a land that other nations would come to to know God, to see the blessing that he puts on them. But there's also the other side, and that's the side that we see them going to. And Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land because of sin. He is also not the redeemer. But let's put Moses on our timeline. Here is the law and the Ten Commandments. 
So we're going to take a huge leap now, okay? David is now king. Big leap. A lot happened from Moses to now. They're in the promised land. They've rejected God as their king. They wanted men as their king. David is the second king of Israel. The first did not go well at all. And David is called a man after God's own heart. And he's from the tribe of Judah. Could David be the redeemer promised us in Genesis 3? Well, we find out soon enough that David also has sin in his life. He cannot be the redeemer. But before we move on, God makes a very special promise to David. David sees the house that he lives in, his beautiful kingly palace, and he sees that God is still in a tent in a tabernacle. He says, God, I want to make you a house. And God says, no, your son will make the house. But David, I am going to build you a house. So let's turn to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a a father and he shall be to me a son. So this prophecy certainly has something to do with Solomon but this is also pointing forward to a man that God will be to him a father and he will be to God a son. Interesting. This promise from God is awesome. And Satan warred against this promise with everything he had. He came close. Well, close. In 2 Chronicles 22, we get a story of an evil queen named Athaliah. She killed the entire royal line of David except for one. Can you imagine if she would have succeeded and if she would have killed all of them? Again, God's plan would have halted. But God preserved Joash, the only Davidic boy left. He was an infant and he hid him in his temple. And Joash came back and took over the kingdom when he was young, like really young, he was preserved. So God's plan for a redeemer is still in place. And before we step forward a few hundred years, here we have David. I'm going to do King David. So the story is now in the time of the kings and the time of the prophets. And I want to draw our attention to two prophecies really quick because there are a lot in the prophets And the prophets are these guys are the mouths of God. And they are constantly calling Israel to repent and come back. Repent and come back or be judged. So the first of these that we're going to talk about is in the book of Daniel. It's found in chapter 2, verse 44. And this is Daniel. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream where there's this giant statue. And it's gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And then this rock hits it, crushes the entire thing, this rock from heaven, and it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And let's go in, verse 44 of chapter 2. And in the days of those kings, 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And Daniel has just told Nebuchadnezzar that mankind's kingdoms are not going to last, and there's something coming from heaven that is going to take over and rule the world forever. The second one I want to call our attention to is in Ezekiel. It's found in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. And this is what God says to his people, and they're now in exile. They're in, they're in Babylon. They've been taken out of their promised land. And this would have been so important for them to hear. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your un uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I, this is God, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is such good news. God just promised to fix everything. This is a promise of a new covenant, one where God will dwell with his people and his spirit will be inside his people. Does this sound somewhat familiar to the setting that we left in Genesis 3? Let's move on. We're officially in the New Testament. Way to go, church. We're hanging in there. We are still in the rising action of the narrative, but we are quickly closing in on the climax. Let's turn to John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this moment of the story, we see that God has come down. He has exited his place in eternity. He has put on skin. He has become one of us to save us. Turning quickly to Mark, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. This is Jesus talking here. This is right after John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news about himself, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Could Jesus be the promised redeemer from Genesis 3? The Jews at this time would have understood, as we should, that Jesus just said he is the fulfillment of the law the sacrificial systems, the covenants and the promises made to Abraham and Moses and David. And you can almost hear Satan go, uh-oh, I need to kill this guy quick. And that is Satan's only move. So he proceeds with it. Jesus dies on a cross. And Satan thinks he's won. He thinks he has just killed God. It reminds me of this scene in Megamind, for those of you that have seen it. 
when Megamind thinks he has killed Metro Man. And he's shocked. And he looks at his minion and he goes, we, we did it, minion. We really did it. And with an evil chuckle, Satan walks away. And what he did not realize was that this was the plan the whole time. And this is the climax of God's story. Turn with me to John 10, verses 17 and 18. And this is Jesus talking. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew this would happen. God planned on laying down his life in order to redeem his creation. His holy blood paid the blood debt owed by all of humanity. Something else very important happened during the three days that Jesus' body was in the tomb. And if you quick turn to 1 Peter 3, this is page 589 in the Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I'm going to turn 3.18 and 19. And Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's a little strange. There's a lot to unpack here. Mark's going to get to it in about a year. We're going to take what we need and run. The important thing is that Jesus' spirit went and we know that it proclaimed the good news of himself somewhere in prison. <laughs> and on the third day, he left that place, taking the keys to death and Hades with him, saying, you're not going to need these anymore. These are mine. And as Jesus took his first breath, imagine the fear that went through Satan's mind. As his lungs filled with air, our conquering king, Satan realizing that he had been a pawn this whole time, he threw his best at God and all he managed to do was bruise his heel. Jesus had just crushed his head. As promised. Back in Genesis 3. So we have the cross on our timeline. And that is the climax. That is what this whole story revolves around. And we're going to skip a section for now. And we're going to come back to it at the end. But turn with me to Revelation. We're just jumping from John to Revelation. It's going to be great. Um, this is a scene in Scripture that maybe most of us thought would be the climax. Revelation 19 is really the epilogue. Remember, the climax was Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from that death. Revelation is in the future, even for us. So in chapter 19... 
Jesus rides in on a white horse, and by the power of his word, he defeats his enemies and sets up his kingdom on earth for a time. Let's extend my timeline here. I'm going to draw Jesus on a white horse. (laughs) Bear with me. There we are. Jesus on his white horse. Thank you. Running down the page now to Revelation 20, verse 7. Here we have the total end of Satan and a display of God's power again, illustrating that God and Satan, they are not peers. If one of our human authors would have wrote this, this would have been a massive climactic battle at the end of the book. God writes this in one verse, which is why we know this is not the climax. Revelation 20, verse 9, this is talking about Satan and his followers. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. That was a quick end. Chapters 21 and 22 conclude just as the story began in Genesis in the first two chapters. Finally, after all this time, what started in a garden will end in a garden. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The Lord will be their light. Oh, excuse me. God will be with them as their God. Let's go down just a couple verses later. Verse 5. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The story ends just as it began, with mankind dwelling in the presence of God, in perfect fellowship with him, ruling and reigning with him over creation. And if you had any doubts about who Jesus was, Jesus tells John in verse 16 of chapter 22 of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. All things fulfilled in Jesus. So we're not going to end our timeline because we know it goes to eternity. But here we have the final creation, Adam and Eve, ruling under God. Oh my gosh, I forgot how to draw a throne. I have to go back and look for those of you that need that. As if you can't draw your own throne. That's the epilogue. That's how our story ends. Good job, church. All things fulfilled in the climax of Jesus. But we're not quite done yet. We made it. But I skipped a chunk. Hmm. 
It is so important to view the story of the Bible in light of the whole. If we do not keep a perspective of God's grand plan, I believe we will lose sight of eternity and we will only focus on the now. We can no longer view the Psalms as just the Psalms or Colossians as just a letter to a church in Colossae. God had a plan for eternity and he wrote it in the entirety of scripture. I think it is so amazing how all 66 books flow and weave into one another to build one grand narrative of what God is doing. It helps us to understand where we fit in today. So let's fill in that hole between Jesus at the cross and Jesus on the white horse. And we're going to draw a bunch of stick figures here. And we're going to do it really quick. This is the church. Here are their bodies. Here are their legs. Here are the people, their arms. And our job, as we find out in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us all authority has been given to him. And he commands us to go and tell. Go and tell people the good news that the Redeemer has come. Go and tell people the good news that the Redeemer is coming again. Our job, church, is to go and tell, proclaiming Jesus is king and Jesus as the Redeemer. And if I could get this to zoom in, oh, there we go. There is the timeline of Scripture. And one final thing. If you're here today and you have questions and you came here looking for answers, I hope that this has helped to answer a few of them. Our world is broken and we know that and all of us have sinned and we know that. But we also know that we have a redeemer that has already come, has already conquered and he's coming back as the conquering king. The Bible says that is what is happening. So believe in the one who shed his blood for you. Believe in the one who redeemed all of creation back to its original state of fellowship with God in a garden. And if you still have questions, ask a friend. Or ask one of our staff or elders. Hopefully we're easier to find. We all have these orange lanyards. But I also want to invite you to join us over the next 66 weeks with Advent nestled in the middle of it as we walk through the Bible together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for these people here. I thank you for your plan for all of us. I thank you that your plan is your plan, that you accomplished it, that you get the glory. I thank you for your word that you gave to us so that we can know you. Help us to love it, to cherish it, to honor it as we seek to love you and know you well. God, I thank you for the privilege that you have given us to proclaim your son, the good news that he is redeemed and that he is coming back. Thank you for everything that you have done throughout history to bring glory to yourself. God, we love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates. For more information about our church, 
or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.